This case started back in January 31st, 1982, when this man killed his wife. This man. I don't care that he's old. I don't care that he's sitting in a wheelchair. I don't care that he's sick. It's irrelevant. He has killed three people in this case. It is time that he is held accountable. It's easy to go, oh, Bob's entertaining. What a, what a funny old man with this funny marijuana story. Yeah, that funny old man murdered three people. That's very important because Nick doesn't want to say that Bob killed Susan. But his answer is that, listen, I don't want to hurt Bob. And Susan's gone and Kathy's gone. He has never been held accountable for his domestic abuse of Kathy. He was never held accountable for her death. For the last 20 years, he's gotten away with murdering Susan. For the last 20 years, he's avoided responsibility for Morris Black. Durst is not jinxed. He's a three-time killer who has managed to escape accountability until this very moment. Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. This is part two of our special episode covering the dramatic last days of closing arguments and rebuttal in the trial of Robert Durst. We will conclude this episode by bringing in our reporter, Charlie Bagley, for a final discussion of the closings and some general reflections on our coverage of this trial. That's coming up after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On the morning of Tuesday, September 14th, after reminding the jurors of the voluminous evidence of Robert Durst's guilt, John Lewin continued his rebuttal with a presentation of Durst's alleged confessions. All right, let's talk about the most damaging, and these are only a few of them, admissions in this case. So we have the confession out of his own mouth, Bob Durst's own mouth. It was her or me, I had no choice. Those nine words from Bob's close friend. I'm gonna go over that in more detail in a moment. Nick Chavin is also a villain in this case. And by the way, you know how damaging the Nick Chavin stuff was because you can hear the jail calls, the attorney showing up at Nick's office, Bob talking about how worried he is about Nick, Bob mentioning after a couple of years of not talking to Nick, within 40 seconds on the jail call, he's bringing up the dinner. He knows what he did, and he knows what Nick's situation was, and he thought, and Susie Giordano thought, that Nick was going to keep his mouth shut. And for a long time, Nick did. So we have that confession. It was her and me, I had no choice. Killed them all, of course. And remember, and I mean, this is like what a six-year-old comes up with. Actually, what I was saying is, they'll think I killed them all, of course. Well, wait a minute, it's recorded. Where is it on the recording? Well, the mic did pick it up. Well, you listen to it, the mic's picking up. Oh, yeah, I guess I didn't say that, but that was in my head. Are you kidding? It's patently absurd. We've got the call, and this call is pretty chilly. Uh, anyway, so we took the call, and she moved into the here. I said that. 
After covering instances in which Durst allegedly conceded the truth, Lewin moved on to deconstructing one of the defendant's purported lies. This evolving defense is also demonstrated by Durst's literally outrageous and constantly changing statements. I mean, this is just a few of them. Barry Weiner, Barry Weiner, the DigiNote, playing nursemaid to Diane Boucher, Danny Cunningham and the 100-acre farm with no electricity. Hard to keep a straight face. And in fact, the statements, they're not just unreasonable, they're not just absurd. They're actually comical. And by the way, it's easy to go, oh, Bob's entertaining. What a, what a funny old man with this funny marijuana story. Yeah, that funny old man murdered three people, okay? So yeah, his, his statements can be humorous in some sick way, and he's very creative with it, but behind those statements is murder. So again, I thought that the Danny Cunningham thing was really interesting for this reason. A friend of mine from years ago, we were both at UCLA. He lived in Barbersville and earned a living selling marijuana. So I went to his house oh, next to a redwood forest in Garbersville and bought a pound of marijuana. Now remember, that was during direct examination. And by the way, he deliberately doesn't give a name because he hasn't really thought about it. So he comes up with this, he drove down to Garbersville to buy the pound of marijuana. Why does he have to do that? He has to explain why he's making the phone call from the payphone at 3 p.m. The problem with Bob Durst's lies are he tells one and then he has to tell three more to cover the one. And then not only is he lying about the one, but then you'll catch him in lies about the three that he came up with. So what happened with this? Well, during cross-examination on a completely unrelated topic that morning, if you remember, about the note, we were talking about whether the note said truck instead of trunk. But we give him that report by the handwriting expert in the morning. So he looks at that report. He looks at it. We also put it up on the screen, if you remember. And he saw a name. And it was the name of that handwriting expert, which was Lloyd Cunningham. So at that moment, ladies and gentlemen, Danny Cunningham, the marijuana dealer, was created. Welcome to the mind and the lies of Bob Durst. And notice when he's asked in that afternoon about it, 
This is now we're going to ask him about the name because he never gave a name to Mr. Guerin on uh, direct. Listen to how he hesitates. So you went down and you bought a pound of marijuana from your old friend from college days, correct? Is that correct? Correct. You, you know, I noticed, Mr. Durst, when you were testifying, you didn't give a name. Why didn't you give the guy's name? Why did you just call him an old friend from college? Well, I don't want to, don't want to get him in trouble. You're concerned that in 2021, he's going to get in trouble for a pound of weed that he sold 21 years ago. Is that your testimony? My testimony is I did not lose his name because I did not want him to get in trouble. Well, here, you don't have a choice. What's his name? Danny Cunningham. Danny Cunningham. I assume his name is Daniel Cunningham? I knew him as Danny Cunningham. Okay, this is literally the plot to the 1995 Kevin Spacey movie, The Usual Suspects. For those of you who don't remember, this was a movie where Spacey's character is being interrogated. The whole movie is an interrogation, and he creates this wild story of Kaiser Sose. He is the alleged mastermind of this plot, and the whole movie is him describing it. And if you remember, at the end of the movie, Spacey's character is released because of the Kaiser Sose thing. And the investigator, there's a scene where the investigator looks around the interview room and he realizes, oh my God, all these details that were in the story, he's just taken from the room. He made the whole thing up. And for Bob Durst, he could have been up there. And, and I'm surprised that he didn't say, what's the guy's name? Uh, Danny Microphone. Danny Jury Box, Danny Bailiff. How does this happen in a trial? This is a bad movie, but that's what happened. That's who he is, that's how he lies. Lewin then segued from this deconstruction of a Durst lie into identifying a larger theme of Durst's now signature defense against accusations of wrongdoing over the course of the last 40 years. Another theme of the defense case has been the idea that Bob Durst, again, is kind of a victim of bad luck, that in essence, like the title of the miniseries, he's jinxed. Look how unlucky he is. His wife mysteriously disappears right before she's supposed to graduate from medical school. He happens to be the last one to see her alive. His best friend Susan is murdered just after the reinvestigation was made public and after she has told him she's gonna to talk to the police. He finds Susan's dead body just happens to be in Los Angeles for absurd reasons, and sends a note to the police that only the killer could have written. Morris pulls a gun on him for no apparent reason. That's never been explained. He's accidentally shot and killed during the struggle. Bob responds by dismembering him. He then sits down with Jarecki, who for some unknown reason decides to frame him. And then his remaining best friend, Nick Chavin, falsely claims he confessed. That's a lot of bad luck. The prosecutor then turned that theme on its head and offered the jurors a different way of looking at it. But you know what? You can really ask, instead, is it 40 years of undeserved good luck? He has never been held accountable for his domestic abuse of Kathy. He was never held accountable for her death. For the last 20 years, he's gotten away with murdering Susan. For the last 20 years, he's avoided responsibility for Morris Black. Durst is not jinxed. He's a three-time killer. 
who has managed to escape accountability until this very moment, until you 17 people, 12 of you who are going to deliberate, decide, you know what? It's time for him to be held accountable. All right, let's talk about Nick Chavin. To really understand Nick Chavin, you have to go back to the beginning. <coughs> so what happened back on April 6th? Nick's contacted finally after repeated efforts have failed, and he finally returns our calls. From the start of the conversation, Nick is very reluctant to provide any damaging information. Okay, so tell me, so what is your memory about what Susan said about um, Bob having killed Kathy? This is hard for me to say. Can I think about it if I want to talk about that? So he makes it very clear that he is conflicted in his loyalties. He's not saying I don't have any information. He's saying I'm not ready. Hey, Nick, can, can you tell me, is it because of your loyalty to Bob? Um, I mean, it's understandable. You can be honest about yeah. it. We're just trying to figure I, out what... I mean, it is, is, yeah. is it because is it you guys are still friends, or...? I love Susan, because she's a dear, dear friend. And, yeah. and same with Bob, so this well, thing with your, your, your best friend killing your other best friend. So he's asked during that conversation, hey, if Nick, if Bob had confessed to you, would you tell us? It's a question I like in case anyone hasn't noticed. If I were to say to you, hey, if did Bob ever admit to you that he killed Susan? And, and your answer is, I don't want to answer that. Is that correct? Yes. That was very important because that's really the first time. By saying that, Nick is in essence conceding, yes. Bob confessed to me, but I don't want to tell you. Because obviously, if Bob hadn't confessed, then he's going to be very, very clear, you know, what he didn't confess to me. What you gain from this is, is even from that first conversation, Nick is having trouble lying. He's very conflicted. So Nick expands on why it's hard for him to talk about these issues and what Susan had always said to him about Kathy. And it's, 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 it's sad, and it's very true. I know this is tough, but I want you to think about this for a second. Um, forgetting about Bob for a second, Susan was your was your close friend, right? Yep, absolutely. Forgetting yeah. about Bob for a minute, do you want the person who's responsible for her death, do you want that person held accountable? Forgetting about Bob for a second, just whoever well, that person is, do you want that person held accountable? Well, you remember what? Susan told me about Bob, which was, there's nothing we can do for her now. She's gone, but, you know, he's not. And, and okay, and so is what, the way I'm taking that, Nick, is you're kind of, the same thing that Susan said about Kathy, you're now kind of saying to yourself about Susan, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, he's alive. He's not. That's very important because Nick doesn't want to say that Bob killed Susan. But his answer is that, listen, I don't want to hurt Bob, and Susan's gone and Kathy's gone. But then we get to July 19th, and that's really important because on that day, and this is in the stipulation, we spoke with Nick's wife, Terry. Now, again, Mr. Chesnoff said we badgered her. It's not correct. She called us. Nick, remember, was not aware that his wife had called us. Now, after speaking with Terry, when Nick was contacted, he was very upset. And at that point, not knowing it's coming, he tried to back away from the information he had provided. Those are the calls 
those are the uh, clips that Mr. DeGarren and Mr. Chesnoff played. So then we get to October 30th, and that's the call. That's when we finally hear what happened. We had dinner, we talked, and time passed. And I hadn't brought up that first day, and I was interested in the dinner, I remembered we hadn't talked about Susan and about Kathy, what he said he wanted to do, right? You with me? Yep. Okay. All right, so after dinner, we're walking out of the place, we're on the sidewalk, and I, I almost panicked me aware of the fact that we, one of my objectives was my, my objective was really to find out I needed to hear from him that he killed Kathy and Susan. And then okay, we had so then we're outside and I said, Bobby, you started to turn to walk away to go over and go in different directions. I said, Bobby, I said you wanted to talk to me about Susan. Here it comes, gentlemen. He looked at me and he said, I had to. I had no choice. I had to. It was her or me. I had to. I had no choice. I had to. It was her or me. He turned and started to walk away. And I said, uh, did you want to talk about Kathy? But he just kept walking. He didn't say anything. I didn't try to follow him. That seemed like a weird thing to do. And that is the confessional that I got from his own lips to me. And, and Nick? Um, yeah. How certain are you that when you asked him the question, that it was clear that you were asking him about whether he had murdered Susan? 100%. So this is an important distinction. Nick Chavin never perjured himself. Never. Nick Chavin was not originally honest on the phone when he was not under oath, but well before he took the stand, he said what happened, and he testified under oath truthfully. So when they try to talk about Nick's lying and Nick's perjury, did not happen. So on cross-examination, Mr. DeGarren made a strong effort to try and confront Nick Chavin with what he had said the past July. And Nick Chavin was very clear about it. The passage before it is uh, Mr. Lewin asking you, stating to you that uh, what Terry had said and repeating uh, what Terry had said and he says and that finally he turned to you and he said it was either Susan or me being something that Terry said then right to them. and you say yeah no that didn't happen she told me that she said it and I said that didn't happen. She said, you told me it did. I said, no, I didn't. And it didn't happen. Now, who's telling the truth there? Sir, how could she have even known those words if I hadn't told her? Who's telling the truth there? But as far as who's lying. You tell, you tell, uh, you tell the prosecutors that didn't happen. That's what you said, isn't it? Yeah, I'm covering up. So you're lying. I'm covering up. I don't want to tell the truth. Yes, I think there's a big difference. And you repeated that didn't happen. Through 56 minutes, I'm covering up the same thing. We all know it happened. We all know I don't want to admit it. That seems so painfully obvious. And by the way, that's why Nick Chavin, if you noticed, when we would ask him, he wouldn't say Bob didn't say anything until that one call when we surprised him. He would say, 
I'm not ready, I don't want to tell you, etc. But in the end, as hard as it was, he told the truth and he did it before he came into court. Having reframed Nick Chavin's statements as signs of Robert Durst's luck running out, Lewin turned the tables on the defense team's assertion that no evidence is evidence by identifying two potential defense witnesses who were conspicuously absent from their case. The defense made a lot of arguments about why didn't we call this witness and why didn't we call that witness? Well, let's be clear. Debbie Cheriton had information, Bob's wife, that he said helped him. The judge instructed you, we are not allowed to call her as a witness. We can't. They can call her. Bob Durst repeatedly, if you remember, every time he'd get caught on something, he would say, well, I told my lawyer, I told my wife, etc." Well, where's his wife? How come she wasn't called to testify? Where is she? She wasn't called to testify because if she testifies under oath, Bob Durst has a big problem because it's very clear from that phone call that they both were aware that Bob Durst killed Kathy. I want to be clear on this. Failure to call a logical witness is something you can consider. So they didn't call Debbie Chair. Who else didn't they call? Barry Weiner or Barry Weiner? Why didn't they call him? He apparently doesn't exist. If he did, they would have called him. Why didn't they say, hey, well, you didn't hear the Galveston evidence? Well, why didn't they put on additional Galveston evidence? And why did they stipulate to all the evidence we put on? Does it make sense to you, ladies and gentlemen, if there was evidence from Galveston that helped Bob Durst with his seven or eight lawyers and his millions of dollars, don't you think they would have put on that evidence? Of course they would have. It doesn't exist. That's why it wasn't put on. What else? Well, why didn't we exhume Susan's body? For, for what purpose? She shot from behind. You're not, there's no struggle. You're not going to get any DNA from underneath your fingernails. And if they wanted to exhume the body, why didn't they do it? Again, the same thing. We also, well, where's the GSR on the note? Is there any evidence that the defense asked that that be tested? More than that, is there any evidence, you saw the fingerprint powder on the original note, is there any evidence that you would get any GSR anyway? Um, no examination, they say, of the towel or the clothing. What would that prove? And if you wanted that examined, why didn't you do it? So they are trying to, we put on. What? Objection. Go ahead. State it. Shifting the burden, Your Honor. Over over. And by the way, the cow, the towel was collected. It was in evidence. They could have tested it. And by the way, the defense is up there saying, I'm shifting the burden. Oh, no. We have met this burden every way possible. What's going on is the defense comes up here and they throw the kitchen sink up there saying, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you call this person? How about this? It's as if Mr. Chesnoff is telling you, well, we couldn't call them. If that was relevant evidence that would have helped their client, you would have heard that evidence put on in this case. You didn't. They put on two witnesses I'll get to in a moment. That's it. That was the extent of what they've done. Nothing more. The prosecutor next savaged the defense witness who botched the investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance, former NYPD detective Michael Strzok. I want to talk briefly about the NYPD investigation. Detective Strzok. Um, the defense called him as their witness. Remember, they called him, and the original testimony was to talk about what a great job he had done on the case. I want to give you an opportunity to answer that here in open court and on the record. Did you do your dead level best in your investigation? Yes. 
Now remember, they have the discovery. They know what he's done and not done. They know he had sex with a witness. They know he didn't ever search the house. He was asked to grade himself. But I think uh, collectively with, uh, with my colleagues and my bosses, our, um, our game plan and how we handle this, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable. A B? He's literally having sex with a witness. He's staying over at another witness's house. He's having Mary Hughes buy him beer. He's taking concert tickets when he meets the family. My God, if that's a B, what's an F? What grade would if you would the defendant give detective struck? Well, listen. Bob Durst needs Detective Struck to have done a good job. He said, I believe the police have gone above and beyond the call of duty. What information did Detective Struck have at the time? So is it fair to say that very early in this investigation, February 5th, February 8th, February 9th, you're getting repeated statements from different witnesses saying that Bob is physically abusing Kathy, correct? He knew from very early on that Bob Durst was lying about his alibi. He did not have drinks with the mayor. What did he do about it? Nothing. He does nothing. He doesn't go check the trains. He doesn't interview anybody. He does zero. But he did say that early on, he believed Bob Durst was responsible. And you believed at the end of your investigation, that was your belief that Bob Durst was responsible for Kathy's disappearance and death. Is that correct? That was my belief, yeah. And let me ask you, do you, can you tell me when it was during the investigation that you came to that opinion? Fairly early on. So what follow-up did Detective Struck do? They never searched the house. Although Mr. Chesnoff said not one scintilla of evidence was found in the house. Yeah, when they searched it 20 years later, he made no effort, which he admits, to search the very place that Kathy had last been seen. So would you agree, Detective, that that house, during the original investigation, was never thoroughly searched and processed by you or your representatives from NYPD? Right. And would you also agree that as far as you know, that house was never thoroughly processed or examined? by any other law enforcement agency other than what Trooper Harney told you he noticed walking in looking for a body lying around. That's correct. Would you agree, Detective, that that was absolutely a huge mistake on your part not having that done? Looking back on it now, it, it would have probably been a good thing to do. He didn't want to admit any responsibility. He was asked about the fact that you're aware that Bob Durst didn't report her until days after she went missing. Did you do any follow-up? Yeah, you know what? Sitting here today, I probably should have gone to the rotation. That would have been helpful. I would have found out she wasn't staying overnight. I should have done that. It probably would have helped. Even though he was aware of the call to Dr. Cooperman, he made no effort to investigate any of the issues about why did Dr. Cooperman think it was Kathy never asked him, never did anything. It was beyond incompetent. It was beyond negligent. It was disgusting. It was horrific. 
And it's one of the reasons that Bob Durst has been walking around for all these years. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. John Lewin concluded his rebuttal with an appeal to the jury to hold Robert Durst accountable for his crimes. This case started back in January 31st, 1982. When this man killed his wife, this man, I don't care that he's old, I don't care that he's sitting in a wheelchair, I don't care that he's sick, it's irrelevant. He has killed three people in this case. It is time that he is held accountable. This man murdered Susan Berman. He murdered her. Absolutely, unequivocally, positively. That's what he did. We've done our job on this case. We can't do anymore. You guys now have this case. It's going to be yours. It is never easy to have to convict somebody of murder. And some of you might want to say, well, he's old and he's decrepit and why does it really matter? It matters because of Kathy and of Morris and of Susan. Justice matters. Consequences matter. Do not let this narcissistic psychopath get away with what he has done, what he did to Susan Berman. There's one verdict in this case, one verdict only that is guilty, that is guilty of special circumstances, having killed Susan Berman with a firearm, having done so by lying in wait, ambushing his trusted friend, putting a bullet in the back of her head, which thank God she never saw coming, doing it because she was a witness, because he didn't want to accept the consequences of his conduct. Make him accept the consequences. Go back there, ladies and gentlemen, and please, do your job. Do your duty. This is not a difficult case. This is not hard. It's overwhelming. Please, go back there and make this man accept the consequences for murdering his best friend, Susan Berman. Again, I want to thank you all for your time and for your attention. I'm sorry this has gone on for so long. And um, again, thank you very much. After Lewin finished his remarks, Judge Wyndham instructed the jurors to retire to the jury room for deliberations. They were given extensive instructions on how to consider the law in Durst's case. The following is an excerpt of those instructions. The full transcript can be found at crimestory.com. If you decide that the defendant committed homicide against Kathy Durst, you may but are not required to consider that evidence for the limited purposes of deciding whether the defendant believed Susan Berman would be a witness in the prosecution of that crime and deciding whether the defendant had a motive to commit the murder of Susan Berman as alleged in this case. 
You may also consider that evidence for the limited purposes of deciding whether the defendant had a motive to kill Morris Black and whether the defendant had a plan or scheme to kill this member and dispose of Morris Black. If you decide the defendant's homicide of Morris Black was a murder, you may, but are not required to consider that evidence for the limited purpose of deciding whether the defendant had a plan or scheme to commit the offense alleged in this case. If you conclude that the defendant committed the acts, that conclusion is only one factor to consider along with all the other evidence. It is not sufficient by itself to prove the defendant is guilty of the murder of Susan Berman or the special circumstance of witness killing. The people must still prove the charge beyond a reasonable doubt. Homicide. Homicide is the killing of one human being by another. Murder is a type of homicide. The defendant is charged with murder. Defendant is charged with murder. To prove the defendant is guilty of this crime, the people must prove that one, the defendant committed an act that caused the death of another person. And two, when the defendant acted, he had a state of mind called malice aforethought. If you decide that the defendant committed murder, it is murder of the second degree, unless the people have proved beyond a reasonable doubt that it is murder of the first degree. The defendant is guilty of first degree murder if the people have proved that he acted willfully deliberately and with premeditation. Special circumstances. If you find the defendant guilty of first degree murder, you must also decide whether the people have proved that one or more of the special circumstances is true. The defendant is charged with a special circumstance of murder of a witness. To prove that this special circumstance is true, the people must prove that one, the defendant intended to kill Susan Berman. Two, Susan Berman was a witness to a crime. Three, the killing was not committed during the commission of the crime to which Susan Berman was a witness. And four, the defendant intended that Susan Berman be killed to prevent her from testifying in a criminal proceeding. The special circumstance is not confined to the killing of an eyewitness but includes any other witness who might testify in a criminal proceeding. And there it is. The trial of Robert Durst has now gone to the jury. Joining us now to discuss this final day of the trial is reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for CrimeStory.com and for the New York Times. Charlie, welcome back. Thank you. Before we get into the arguments themselves, Charlie, what was your reaction to Judge Wyndham's ruling on John Lewin's complaint that Dick DeGaron had acted improperly when he suggested that the court had acted improperly in including prejudicial evidence against his client and that there was evidence that the jury had not heard from the Galveston trial. It seemed to me that, that the judge was speaking truth here. You know, the idea you hear about somebody dragging a saw, a bow saw, across human flesh. I mean, if, if you don't react to that, I'm not sure you're alive. It does have an effect on people. 
And in fact, when this point was being argued several years ago, one of the defense lawyers got up and said, Judge, if you let this in, it's lights out for us. On the other hand, when DeGaron steps forward and says that he's heard evidence that they weren't privy to in Galveston, he's going outside the bounds of this trial. Brittany, what did you make of that? I was surprised that he didn't come down harder on DeGaron for doing something that I think there are clear legal reasons why he shouldn't have said that. But at the same time, it did make sense that he was acknowledging, yes, the evidence from Galveston is prejudicial, but it was included for a reason. And that reason being because of the special circumstance of killing witnesses. And ultimately, and Lewin's been saying this pretty much every time the jury leaves the room, this is not happening in a vacuum. And the jury has thankfully been able to get the full picture. Very little has been excluded. So ultimately, I thought it was a pretty fair ruling. Well, terrific. Let's move on to the conclusion of the defense's closing argument. David Chesnoff took the lectern. Charlie, what did you make of Mr. Chesnoff's performance? In contrast with his colleague, Mr. DeGaron, this was a much more vigorous defense of their client. He tried to raise a lot of questions about evidence. Where is Kathy? How can they say she was murdered and not show us a body? But at the same time, he largely ignored his own client's admissions and statements. For instance, he cited Elizabeth Loftus, who is a memory expert, and implied that many of the witnesses might have had their memories polluted by either the passage of time or leading questions from prosecutors. But what did Bob say? He said that he knew that Susan had been telling people that he killed Kathy and she helped him with an alibi. So he thinks that these memories that people were telling us about were all accurate. So time and again, it seems like the points that he wanted to make were undermined by his own client. Brittany, what did you make of David Chesnoff's closing? I think a lot of the points he was trying to make really fell flat. First, he spent an awfully long time comparing the defense team to the power of the state. I think he was trying to set up this sort of David and Goliath dynamic. I don't know who he thinks he's fooling. I think everybody is very aware of Robert Durst's vast wealth as evidenced by his team of lawyers. They're very much, it appears, on even footing. That's very often not the case, but in this case, they're on somewhat of an even playing field. So it seemed like his best bet for convincing this jury at this stage is to lean into the idea of reasonable doubt. We'll get to how and took a swing at all of these points. But there was one interesting thing that I thought in pondering it myself, I don't feel like I have a great answer for. There are, of course, a lot of parallels between what happened with Morris Black in Galveston and what happened with Susan Berman in LA. However, one thing that is just an undeniable difference is that he did leave a huge mountain of evidence in Galveston, and there's almost no evidence at the crime scene at Susan's house. So to say that he has a playbook is maybe a bit of a misnomer. It seems like the playbook of getting away with murder is maybe a stroke of luck. But in fact, there were differences in these two cases. So I thought that was an interesting point to bring up. Although again, I don't know that it's really enough to move the needle at this point. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that he talked about Nick Chavin flip-flopping when the progression of Nick Chavin was so clear. 
that business about the state, I think what they were trying to do was tap into this mood that we have in the country today of deep distrust of government. It is kind of a funny notion, given that the little guy in this case is someone that can afford a $12 million defense team. Yeah, you know, the first story we wrote about this case at crimestory.com, I think we released it in August of 2019, and it compared a hearing in Judge Wyndham's court that Judge Wyndham presided over, over a young man who was pleading no contest to participating in a carjacking. He was represented by an alternate public defender. He was facing 15 years in prison. It was the second felony charge against him. He was 19 years old when he committed the crime. And juxtaposing that against Robert Durst's team of seven lawyers at a cost north of $10 million to string a case out over six, seven years. And before that, stringing out the other cases that he was involved in over 40 years. It's just stunning that these attorneys can make the case that Robert Durst is the David to the state's Goliath. And I'm very sympathetic to that argument as a matter of course. I think that the state often uses its leverage to coerce people into plea agreements that may or may not be just. But this is not one of those cases. If anything, I think what Durst said to you, Charlie, during I think the third or fourth week of the airing of the jinx, when he sort of threw down the gauntlet and said he didn't see it being in the cards that a district attorney would take on some budget-busting prosecution of him. That's where the real story here is. Okay, let's move on to Prosecutor John Lewin's rebuttal and the final hours of this trial. Charlie, what struck you about Lewin's summing up? I thought particularly this morning, he took on the arguments of the defense and, and knocked them down. Chesnoff was able to raise a lot of dust and the prosecutor went in with a vacuum cleaner and got all the dust out of the air. And now you can see clearly the evidence. Brittany, what did you make of John Lewin's closing? This was a highly anticipated moment of this trial, and I think he did a great job really addressing every point that particularly Chesnoff made in his part of the closing. And I thought the most poignant moment was, you know, the defense has made a really big deal over how Bob Durst is frail, he's ill, he's elderly, and he's had to stand trial for so long, and he was on the stand for so many days, and Lewin really put him through the ringer. And Lewin made this really great point that he's lucky to be this old. It's incredibly fortunate that he got to live to an age where he's now experiencing these health problems because he killed three people, including Kathy, who didn't make it to 30. It's so tragic, and there's so much much absurdity in this case. There's ridiculous characters and courtroom hijinks that that kind of gets lost in it. But I think refocusing on the victims in this case was a really powerful moment and a really good move. And I also thought he did a good job of addressing how Bob shifts blame to other people, whether it's his brother Douglas or Janine Pirro, and finally himself, Lewin. And we've certainly talked about how in a lot of ways this trial feels like a climactic showdown between them, having met in the interview in New Orleans, culminating in this trial. But this was the first moment that it felt particularly earned to draw that comparison because Chesnoff in particular had gone so hard at 
Lewin and the job that he's done. And Lewin really coming back with, this isn't about me. This is about being aggressive for the sake of justice. And I thought that point really hit. I completely agree. I also want to address this idea of poor Robert Durst, the kind of frail old man who'd been picked on and beaten up on for nine days of the prosecution's cross-examination. I, I think it was particularly significant that John Lewin hearkened back to 558 days ago when Thomas Durst, Bob's seven-year younger brother, took the stand. And if you recall that testimony, Thomas Durst said he was strong back then, not like what you see right now. And he was menacing, and he violently pushed Thomas and yelled at him and scolded him and menaced him. And the emotional impact that that had on Thomas, even though he was an adult when a lot of these things happened, brought him back into the mindset of a young boy who's being bullied by his older brother. And it was very impactful to me when Lewin reminded the jury of that, because that testimony has resonated with me since Thomas Durst took the stand back in March of 2020. I agree. I think you make a good point. Before we wrap things up, I want to make reference to a note that I got from one of our listeners in order to explore what it is we're doing on this podcast. Obviously, we've been really lucky to have Charlie Bagley with us, who has lived this case and breathed this case for so long and has rendered incredible journalistic coverage of the trial and of the Durst story for going on 30 plus years now. I want to take this last portion of our conversation today and first give Charlie the opportunity to tell our listeners why he participated in this podcast and why he wrote his stories for CrimeStory.com as distinct from the pieces that he wrote and is writing for the New York Times about this story. This is a story that I've lived with for 21 years now, but even before I started writing about Bob... I knew Bob's father, and I know his brother Douglas very well. And after 21 years, I, I know witnesses and lawyers, and I've never been able to tell a lot of what I know because in a newspaper, you've always got to fight for space. Now, I did write 75 or 80 stories for the New York Times, but I was interested in being able to write longer pieces where I could really sketch out the people, who they were, and how they operated. And I was able to comment for the podcast. And that was really about trying to provide some context for what was happening. That's terrific, which is an excellent segue into a note that I got just today. The note begins, I love your podcast, Jury Duty. But I have to say, even though I feel Durst is guilty, I'm so disappointed that you're taking a guilty stance from day one. What happened to unbiased journalism? I'll continue to listen, but please quit biasing your listeners with your opinion. If this were a popularity contest, the prosecution loses thus far. I love what you're doing. Otherwise, you're an awesome host. Very sweet. I responded and I said, I don't think of myself as a journalist, which I don't. I think of myself as a storyteller. And the story that I'm interested in telling here is not whether Robert Durst is innocent or guilty. It's how the narratives are being woven and why. 
we have to use words like allegedly for legal purposes. But I also want to take a common sense approach to the case. I'm very much inspired by the works of Joan Didion, Truman Capote, and Tom Wolfe, the new journalists, as they called themselves. As I've said multiple times, in my opinion, the prosecutor is not aiming at winning a popularity contest. He's got a captive audience in the jury, and his job is to make sure that every one of them checks off every box to get past a reasonable doubt. Durst, on the other hand, again, in my opinion, is playing for himself. And honestly, there are times when I'm not sure who Durst's lawyers are playing for. Maybe it's for the TV cameras. Maybe it's for the audience at home. Maybe for the pundits. Maybe sometimes for their client. But sometimes they're saying things in direct contrast and contradiction of their client. Again, thank you for the kind words and for listening to the podcast. And I just want to return to this idea of the new journalists. What we're trying to do here is to paint as colorful and detailed a story that's grounded in the facts that we've been presented. But we're not trying to do both sides journalism. We're not trying to give equal weight to both sides of the argument. Because in my opinion, that's not how this story needs to be told. And I think that what is interesting here is that people who think that the prosecution and the judge are making mistakes in how they're either presenting the narrative or allowing the narrative to be presented are not zeroed in on the details and the facts of this case. This case is interesting because of who Robert Durst is and because, in my opinion, of the fact that he's been able to get away with things for so long. That's the story that I'm interested in telling. That's the story I've been interested in presenting. And judging from our analytics of the podcast, there are a lot of people who are interested in going on that journey with us. I don't want to move on without Brittany, who is new to this, you know, who comes out of a background of storytelling herself and is new to the world of legal storytelling. What has been your experience, Brittany, in going through this trial and of trying to make sense of it? This has been an eye-opening experience for me. I was drawn to this case initially because Robert Durst is a fascinating character. I think he's an extreme example of an archetype that we see in stories and in real life. You know, the kind of person who lives by his own rules and standards and thinks that society's rules don't apply to him. And he has tried so hard to live the way he wants to without consequences. And it's been really interesting to watch him try to get himself out of the hole he dug himself into by stepping into the spotlight when he did the jinx. In putting together this podcast, I have learned so much about the legal system and about how these narratives are shaped by the different sides. And I have to agree that the narrative of this trial for me was less about did he or didn't he, but rather how is he going to get himself out of this one? Much like Carrie, I'm not a journalist. I'm here for the story. As a journalist, I think of myself as a storyteller. And now oftentimes, you're directed just the news, folks. Who, what, when, where, why. But there is another form of journalism, that, uh, sort of long-form journalism, where you provide a lot more texture. And that doesn't mean you're constantly going on the one hand and on the other hand. Because I, I don't know that that helps a reader or, or a listener either. So I'm not sure that there's a distinction you know, that the distinction is between storytelling and not. I think what we're all trying to do, though, is, is give an honest account of what's happening here. 
and how it happened and why it happened. That's a terrific note to end on, Charlie. Brittany, Charlie, thanks so much for being with us throughout this journey. We've got more to come. We're going to analyze the verdict. We'll have special episodes coming up. We're also looking to see which witnesses and which jurors might be willing to come on the podcast and discuss this trial after a verdict is rendered. So continue to stay tuned to the feed of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, for all of that and the jury's verdict in the trial. Thank you all for listening. As we reported in Friday's bonus episode, the jury delivered a verdict on September 17th, finding Robert Durst guilty of first-degree murder and of the special circumstances of lying in wait and killing a witness. In our next episode, Brittany and I are going to have a post-verdict roundup conversation with our reporter, Charlie Bagley, where we will all discuss our reactions to the verdict and identify some of the most intriguing moments in what is sure to be one of LA's most memorable murder trials. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 